Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Barker, and we're kicking off the first episode of season four with Basil Dimarutas, managing partner of Pan-European Real Estate Investor Four Partnership. Four will be delivering what is expected to be the first net zero carbon building in London. Basil shares his passion for sustainability with us and how Four becoming a B Corp real estate investor helps their assets solve problems for the C-suite making real estate decisions. We uncover a new hashtag, hashtag space as a strategy and why Basil believes we need to change the way we sell real estate. And he says space as a service is here to stay. Now, this episode was recorded before the big CBRE HANA news, but we get to hear the drivers behind HANA's deal with Ford's Windmill Green building in Manchester, England, where they operate a flexible footprint equal to 25% of the asset. So we get to hear a little bit of details around that. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. Now, let's go meet Basil. Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm joined by Basil Dimarutis, managing partner of Four Partnership. Four is a pan-European real estate investor and developer that was originally established to invest the funds of billionaire philanthropist and eBay co-founder Jeff Skoll, with a focus on property and driving positive social and environmental impacts. Basil, who is passionate about sustainable property, brings his early background in engineering and finance, then nearly two decades of real estate investing to align the firm's investment strategy with their investors' core values and a wider sense of purpose. Four is a family office and now invests the money of more than a dozen wealthy individuals and families from around the world who share a commitment to sustainable and social value. Four is active in London and key regional cities, including Manchester and Glasgow in the UK, as well as on the continent over in Germany. The firm's main focus is on offices, transforming outdated buildings into modern workspaces that cater for the next generation of occupiers, aka customers, with a rigorous focus on carbon reduction and positive social impact. Recently completed projects include Windmill Green, the most sustainable new office building in Manchester, which we're going to hear more about shortly. Four is also bringing forward two sustainable offices in Glasgow, as well as a major new project at Tower Bridge in London. Welcome to the Work Bold Podcast, Basil. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. So Basil, um, I've been following you guys for quite some time. Uh, I met with one of your colleagues a couple years ago, and as you know, uh, this podcast is all about spaces of service. I'm going to kick off with a question around spaces of service and how important do you see spaces of service as as a strategy to the workspaces of the future? And has its importance been accelerated or held back by the pandemic that we've seen this year? Um, yeah, look, I think it's, it's hugely important, actually. Um, I think that we see this really as a meta trend, don't we, across all industries, the, the fact that we're consuming infrastructure in all its guises. Um, in a different way than we did a decade ago. I think it's well known the largest taxi company owns no taxis. Uber, the largest hotel company, owns no hotel rooms, no real estate, Airbnb. So I think this is a meta trend that we we, we can't ignore. Um, I will say that during the, the early phases of, of COVID, from a re- purely real estate perspective, um, I think a lot of people thought this was a disaster for the, for the space as a service model because, of course, the the end customer could up up and leave on a on a day's notice or months notice so there was a, a high degree of 
of potential volatility uh, with the end user, the end paying customer. And so a lot of eyes were on the the, uh, the co-working space, space as a service guys. But actually, I think what we found is people really and, and tenants are adopting much more of a like a layered cake approach to their uh, to their space requirements. Instead of maybe taking, say, for example, 20,000 square feet on a 20 year lease, they might take the, like a core bid of five or 10,000 uh, square feet on a on a long term lease, maybe another bit of space, 5,000 square feet on a slightly shorter lease, five years, and then the rest they'll infill with with um, with co-working or, or more spaces of service models. So I, I think it's I think it's here to stay. And I think it's it's now perhaps even maybe more more mainstream than it was pre-COVID. Yeah, I, th- I think you're 100 percent right. Um, it, we saw this sort of trend towards flex in the, the layers of service. Uh, in the in the demand over the past several years, and then COVID now overnight, you know, we've talked about this many times on the podcast. Has sort of accelerated this trend. Um, I think the biggest question is how is the real estate industry going to respond to this? And there's been a few forward leaning uh, companies in our industry that are sort of going on the offense. There's been a lot of people on the defense, and there's been some people in denial. And so. <laughs> Um, it's, it's been, it's been interesting to watch uh, from my perspective. And, uh, you know, obviously as, as we help and advise asset owners in, in leaning into the future, um, it's, it's been fun to start having people call us versus slamming the door in our face in the past. Uh, so no, I um, think that's, I think that's right. And look, I think people are becoming much better informed consumers. I think through this, you know, not all spaces of service, not all flex operators are created equal. And I think what we've seen is that there's a, a big bifurcation now between good quality space, good quality operators, and those that are just simply providing a room and a room and a desk. I think those guys at the bottom end of the of the service delivery spectrum with no differentiated product, well, it's the same like in any industry, uh, really, Caleb. It's it, those guys are going to go uh, go by the way of the, of the of the dinosaur. So you've got to offer the kind of product that people are are after. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Um, you guys are working on this Tower Bridge Court um, project right now. Can you talk about how you guys plan to de- deploy space as a service there and um, and how do you position that to the end user? Yeah, look, this is our flagship uh, development really here in the heart of London on the south side of Tower Bridge, east side of the street. As you go down into, into Shad Thames, some of your listeners will know the, the area well, uh, right, on, right on the river. It's a 110,000 square foot office building um, that we're stripping back to the frame and making a net zero carbon uh, building, one of the first offices that'll be net zero uh, in, in London. Space as a service is a huge part of the model there. It's important. And we, we aim to offer 20, 30% of the, of the space as flex space uh, in partnership with an operator. Um, even during the COVID crisis, we've been marching forward with that strategy and we've been slowly uh, interviewing and whittling down the options to, to a small handful. And I think one of the more interesting options for us to consider there is how do we align this space as a service, the flex offering with our, with our social purpose and environmental sustainability ethos. Um, and, and one of the operators on our, our short list is, is someone who, who does just that. It's not only just flex for flex sake, it's flex with purpose. And I think if we can, get them on board and and, uh, and and deploy that at Tower Bridge Court, I think that'll be a real winning strategy that combines both flexibility and purpose. So I have, I have a question on that. In in season three of the podcast last year, we were all 
valuations and, and how space as a service affects the valuation methodologies or, or how the valuation methodologies affects the footprint of, of space as a service in a building. Um, do, you, do you have any insight on that or how do you look at the valuation piece? That actually tends to, to be a um, you know, pretty fundamental problem if, uh, if you're putting in, in too much flex in particular, the valuers start to, to, uh, to get all bent out of shape about uh, how that impacts long-term, long-term value of the building or, or, or need short-term value. So thankfully, there's a, a bit of guidance coming out uh, soon. There's been already some some pre-work done on it from uh, uh, from in terms of red book valuations, as you all well know. Um, so we look forward to seeing that guidance being formalized and formally adopted, which which puts some um, some guardrails around the valuation methodology methodologies and the way people will value um, flex space because it is. Uh, very different currently in the way that uh, different firms value it and, and different structures. Each deal almost feels like it's unique and it really shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I, I won't go into all the details that we discussed last, last season. Go watch the, go listen to this podcast if you haven't heard them already. Um, but uh, I almost think that we, we need to be looking at space as a service, like we look at property management and bringing in a partner um, like you're talking about, as as bringing in a property manager, um, because there's no doubt that demand and the customers want those layers of service and the flexibility in a percentage of the asset. Um, uh, just like you need to have uh, certain M&E and certain um, in, in broadband standards, you need to have these other service layers. So I look forward to the day when those valuation methodologies are consistent. Um, but I think you're right. It's going to be a case-by-case basis probably for the next one to three years. And I think we have to let the tail wag the dog here um, either, because I think it's obvious to us and to probably many others that uh, the, uh, putting a degree of flex space in a modern office building is fundamentally a good thing to do. As an end investor, we know that that's right. And we just can't have the valuers um, starting to dictate strategy. That's I think, the, the wrong approach. 100%. I agree with you on that. So mo- moving into this next question, this is I found this interesting. You guys have recently been accredited mm-hmm. as a B corporation. As one of the first real estate firms to receive the status, what does your broader social impact strategy mean for the customer in your developments? Um, yeah, we are one of the, the very few uh, real estate firms that become a B Corp. And uh, we're, it's an accomplishment we're hugely proud of. We spent a lot of time uh, during the pandemic, really leaning into our strategy of uh, of being a, a real estate investor, uh, but one that um, that uses environmental and social outcomes to drive financial outcomes. Look, I mean, the way that I I look at this, Caleb, is that that CEOs are are basically in uh, in a panic. They're completely um, in a, a, a in a place where they're not sure what to do. They've got on the one hand their customers and stakeholders and employees that are demanding. Uh, to know what they're doing in terms of the, the the climate crisis to reduce their carbon footprint, and on the other hand, they're they're under the microscope and being asked what's their wider social purpose. And, and you know, for for a CEO of five years ago, these neither of these two questions were were on the on the cards, and and they're literally deer like many of them deers caught in the headlights. Um, so, so for us, we we look at our our offering to to uh, to occupiers and our customers as as really not necessarily being about 
square meters and floor to ceiling height and and the distance to from to windows, but really as a solution to these these two key problems to the to those that occupy the C-suite. So they can come into our building and overnight they turn the key and they reduce their carbon footprint by 40 or 50 percent. We all know that that buildings make up around just under half of a, of a, a typical company's uh, carbon footprint. So if we're offering a net zero solution to them, they can come in and, and solve that uh, in a one And at the same time, and I think perhaps uniquely from our uh, from our buildings and the way that we operate our buildings, we solve the social purpose problem for them as well, because we already have active social programs going on in our buildings. And, you know, they can dovetail into those if it fits with their uh, the causes and, and things that are the most dear to, to them and, and their employees and stakeholders. So, so too, we can solve the, the social purpose uh, issue for them. And so I, I think these are these are important and it's important that we change the way that we we sell real estate, really. It's not a, a physical commodity anymore. You, we started talking about uh, space as a service, but it's also um, space as a strategy, and it, and it needs to dovetail into the strategy of the occupier. I love that. I love that. Space as a strategy. That's going to be my new hashtag. All right. Cool. <laughs> you know, it's, I want to touch on one thing you said about um, how companies are attracting talent, and I, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here a little bit, but um, what I took from that is companies are looking to attract talent, uh, and talent wants a certain thing. So they have to provide that thing for, to attract that talent. Um, and you're talking about that in terms of social responsibility. Um, I'm going to quote, um, the CEO of M- Molis and company who just recently said, uh, we, we're a talent business. I want to attract, motivate and retain the greatest talent in the world. And if the talent, this is all in the U S and if the talent wants to mo- do it in Florida, that's where we'll support them. He's justifying his the move of his company to, to Florida um, as a result of the pandemic. They're leaving the big cities, going to a place that people want to be. Um, and I just equate that to what you're saying because we in real estate need to be thinking about how to help our customer, the companies, the business people that are trying to attract this talent, but also the talent themselves. We have to provide them with environments that are going to help them achieve their objectives. And that's what you're doing here. And I just, I appreciate that. Uh, and, and I think the other thing I want to touch on is that um, it, it just resonates with me that you guys have identified the type of customers that you want to do business with. And now you're providing a, an experience, an environment, a space that they want. And that's all about brand. Yeah. Look, I think you, you hit it uh, head on there. Uh, I don't know why we buy real estate any, any differently than we buy other things, you know, we buy soap and shoes and food and clothes in part, not always, but in part based on um, a common set of values that we identify with those things that we're, we're consuming and buying. You, have you, when you stand in front of the soap at the supermarket, do you, do you read the list of ingredients and, and compare scientifically which one will, will clean better? No, you identify with brand A or you identify with brand B at, at some sort of different level. And so too with real estate, we buy residential real estate often that way, by the way, but we don't buy or consume commercial real estate that way. I think that's changing. And this kind of a values aligned approach to consumption um, is is finally penetrating the real estate market. Yeah. And, and I think in the real estate industry, we, we rarely see uh, the brand of uh, the brand of the experience of the building on the outside of the building like you do in the hotel industry. We don't see that. 
And I dream of a world where we do, where we can look at a building, see what brands on the building and know what experience we're going to get and choose that building or choose another building and not go to that building because of the experience and the, what we identify with. No, com- completely right. And look, I think you've, you've, you've read, um, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow, all these kind of studies that have, that say like you make these snap decisions based on, on, a, like an, uh, uh, imperceptible series of inputs very, very quickly. Um, and again, I think that has, that has a lot to do with value and, uh, and, and what you identify with and how you identify yourself when, and, and again, real estate's no different. Well, I want to talk about your Manchester project, Windmill Green, um, and and I want to talk about the broader strategy there. And do you, do you think that strategy is what attracted CBRE and to put their HANA uh, work, workplace product up there? Um, it's, it's their first one outside of London. They went mm. to Manchester and they did that deal with you guys. Is it because of your your strategy or w- what what drove that deal? Um, well, of course, I'd, I would love to say yes, but I mean, let's start with the fundamentals. Manchester, first of all, it's a fantastic market. We, it's, they are, were drawn to Manchester for the same reasons we were drawn to Manchester. Uh, booming, vibrant city, over 100,000 students. It's been voted by The Economist as the most livable city in the UK in 2019. They have an ambitious net zero carbon uh, plan called Zero Carbon Manchester, uh, which will take them to net zero by 2038. And of course, the micro location where the building is just off St. Peter's Square and, and really in the heart of um, of historic Manchester. So I think first and foremost, the fundamentals have to be have to be spot on. I think in terms of the building, um, and I wouldn't want to speak for them, but but I, I think that they were attracted to really it's the authenticity of the of the approach that we took there towards uh, achieving an environmentally sustainable, socially impactful bit of real estate. Everything from the materiality, the the um, uh, stone on the floor, the wood on the walls. It's it's got the largest green living green wall in, in Manchester with over six thousand plants. This three hundred and sixty degree approach um, towards integrating both environmental sustainability and social impact together. Uh, it, it resonates when you when you step foot in the building, and I th- and I think that they saw that. And in that in that building itself, uh, can you talk about the, the the footprint of the building and then the ratio of what space that they took? Yeah, it's an eighty thousand square foot uh, uh, building. It was uh, a deep retrofit. It started off as a nineteen seventies concrete frame uh, structure that we took the facade off, uh, did some infill, and then went up two floors and increased the area by about thirty five percent or so. And they took half the ground floor. So it's important for them to have a ground floor presence. I think they, if you're selling space as a service, I think uh, you have to think like retail uh, retailers. And so they've got a great ground floor presence that they've created uh, on the on the side facing uh, the, the GMEX, the convention center. Uh, and then they've taken some some upper floors as well. So they're they're about twenty five percent of the overall space in the in the building. And uh, this, the way that they're using the space uh, is a typical HANA model that has a mix of a mix of open plan and cellularized offices. Okay, so that that twenty five percent footprint that CBRE took in the building is that because you guys capped them? Just coming back to the valuation uh, conversation, or is that the amount that they wanted to take? Um, I think it was really around uh, the amount of space that they wanted and that we wanted them to have. So conveniently, there wasn't much of a, 
of, a, of a debate. It was about the right size space for the market for them, and it was about the right size space that we felt was appropriate for the building. Okay, fair enough. Well, here's the big question that I have: it, that deal structure there. If you if you can talk about it, I'm I'm curious. Was it a uh, was it a typical lease? Um, was it on a management agreement, a JV, or some sort of hybrid structure? Um, it's really a, a hybrid structure. So I can't obviously go into the the the, um, the numerical details, but there's a it's a mix of fixed rent and uh, and some variable rent, which aligns uh, us with with them and them with us, and so we're incentivized to make the the building work for for Hana and and to help them. Uh, fill it as quickly as possible, and and equally, um, they're they're on the hook for uh, a, a bit of base rent, which uh, means that there's no free ride for them either. I mean, they have invested a huge amount in making the space beautiful. It's just been finished uh, recently, and um, uh, it really is a stunning bit of um, space that they've fit out uh, there in our uh, Windmill Green building. Thank you for that. And as we look forward into the future. Um, as you deploy space as a service across future assets in, in, in terms of your broader strategy. Um, do, do you look to do similar deals? Have you learned from this particular deal how you might do things differently? How do you feel about straight management agreements? Do you prefer this hybrid structure? Well, look, I think we'd all love to have um, leases. I think this is, this is <laughs> it has to be the starting point, but I don't think those are necessarily on offer, certainly not, uh, not, not for the near term. I think we get closer to a lease uh, structure if you've got a, an unbelievable uh, product like at Tower Bridge, uh, Tower Bridge Court. Uh, the basis we're talking to people there is, is is on something that probably looks a little bit closer to a typical lease structure. I think what we don't want to do is we we don't want to give uh, give the the flex operator a free ride. I mean, this isn't a free option for them to invest the minimum amount of capital and uh, and and take unlimited risk and there's no downside for them if that's the if that's the case. We want them to invest in CapEx. We want them to pay something on a fixed basis and uh, and we're happy to ride with them, but it's not going to be a free ride for them. And do you expect that all of your assets going forward will have some component of flex or service layers in there with a partnership with an operator, however that might look? I, I don't think how you I, I don't think you can avoid that. I don't I don't know what kind of building above a certain size um, would be um, successful without some degree of flexibility. Either there has to be the landlord. So we see oftentimes now landlords fitting out space and offering that uh, themselves as a sort of flex light or, or, or uh, a short, shorter term, fully, fully fitted out space and to occupiers. We think that's a great strategy. We would love to try that out um, uh, at, at some of our new buildings. But I think Flexibility is is where it's at, and um, I think gone are the days of uh, of trying to target a twenty year lease to a you know a FTSE one hundred company uh, for a single let. I, I we've all seen that those companies can go bust just as quickly as the small entrepreneurial ones, and one could argue that actually it's better to have the small entrepreneurial growing companies than it is to have an old dinosaur in your building. So. No, I do think this is here to stay, and we would love to see it happen in each of our buildings. Well, I, I appreciate you letting me dive in all these questions and, and peel back some of the layers. And, and I, I thought that was going to be my last question for you, but I, you just made me think of another one. And I, so I have to ask, um, it, it, if you think that the future is is flexible and, and every asset in the future will have some component of, of space as a service in it, is there a roadmap or a thought about going 
in in building that internally in house versus partnering, or do you see partnering being the better alternative to, to building that sort of business unit in house? Um, I think in the longer term, we'd love to own a own a um, a, a flex business and uh, and be the be able to offer that uh, in-house. We don't see anything out there really that uh, reflects our brand and our values. I mean, Hana certainly comes close, but I think there's a, there's scope to do that in-house. We've seen others others do it, and I, it does tend to be the larger operators like British Bland and and uh, uh, and others that have have got their own uh, own flex offering now. Yeah, it's a way of capturing an additional margin between uh, the wholesale and retail, and I and I don't see why not. Why wouldn't we want to do that? Fantastic. Well, that's uh, that's a great answer, and I think I think the, the the biggest the biggest two quotes on this on this episode so far that I'm going to be tweeting out is space as a strategy, <laughs> yeah, and then flex is where it's at. I love that. Um, cool. I wanted to 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 bring into these quick fire questions here now, and. Um, this is a little bit lighter. You've heard it before, um, but same questions that we've done every season. Uh, people like it, so I'm going to continue. And the first one is, who inspires you in commercial real estate? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I love the sheer grit and determination of uh, of real estate investors, and I've seen so many of them over the over the years. People like Irvine Seller. I re- remember asking him in uh, in 2009-10 how he was doing, and he told me he was quote between fortunes. I mean, that that doesn't sum up. <laughs> Probably most real estate investors. I don't. I don't know uh, what does. Or, or people like um, Saul Kersner, who I had the pleasure of uh, of working working with uh, some years ago. And I remember sort of walking a, a million square foot project under construction, trying to keep up with his fast pace. And he would literally spot on the wall where there were misplaced uh, sockets, electrical sockets, and you know, sort of people with clipboards running behind him taking note. I mean, the the sheer attention to detail of people like him is just beyond uh, comprehension. I actually relate to that myself. Um, I, I sort of had straddled my career between the events industry and commercial real estate. And one of the first things I notice when I go to to an event is where the power sockets are, because you know usually when I'm in events, I'm I'm live tweeting or you know whatever and uh, doing research while I'm uh, listening, and your phone gets low on battery. Uh, so I'm always looking for where where can I plug in the places that have the right number of sockets for the number of people that should be in that space is is gets the five stars from me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so my next question is, what podcast or media do you consume to stay up to date on the latest industry trends? Um, yeah, great, great question. I mean, besides yours, of course. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, during the, the pandemic, I've taken up uh, taken up road cycling. So I got myself a bike and I'm put um, uh, on very low volume um, podcasts often in my, my ears. So I've been catching up a, a lot of podcasts these last six or nine months. So, I mean, I have to love Tim. Ferris, everyone loves Tim Ferris, oh, yeah. and he's had some some amazing guests on, like uh, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who sadly just recently passed away, or the Hugh Jackman podcast he did recently was uh, was amazing. Uh, I really like the Urbanist uh, from Monocle. I think that's a, a really good one. Again, I try not to to think too much about real estate, and when I consume media, I try to think and um, read and listen to things that have wider context and wider societal trends. And I think. Um, that does a good job of blending, blending that in. Reimagine that's a new series, actually, new podcast series out from the School Center for Social Entrepreneurship um, by its director uh, uh, Peter Drobak. So if you haven't listened to that, that's a good one. Um, and then I love just consuming like raw data, and I think there's a lot of noise out there now about future of work and end of the office and everything. So I try to go to the raw data. People like Gensler and Leisman and Gartner and others who've gone out and done proper 
statistically statistically valid surveys. Um, and so I, I tend to try to really get under the skin of those kinds of things and make up my own mind. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I like what you said about not thinking about real estate because it can't be all work. We have to have this this blend or this balance, however we choose to go. So my last question is not thinking about real estate. Where's your favorite holiday destination? Yeah. Um, look, I've got three young kids, so I think um, Disney has to be high on the list uh, on that. And, and Paris recently, or Florida? Oh, uh, I'm, going <laughs> Flor- I'm going Florida. Okay. I think it would be nice weather as well. When, when doesn't go doesn't go wrong for mom and dad. And um, we took a fantastic family holiday not too long ago to to Dubai, and actually surprisingly at an Atlantis resort, all inclusive with the water rides and everything. And again, you can just let the kids run run wild and and mom and dad on the loungers. And again, that's uh, simple the simple pleasures in life. It sounds like. I'm the only one of my friends who have not been to Dubai. I see all their pictures on Instagram and it's made me jealous. So I will, I will make sure to go to Dubai at some point in the near future. It's not an obvious one to put on a, on as a family destination, but it's, it's surprisingly awesome. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Now I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights with me. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Caleb. Thanks for having me. So be sure to connect with Basil on LinkedIn or follow him on Twitter. He's at Basil underscore four, F-O-R-E. And also you can follow for partnership at for partnership on Twitter. Thank you for tuning in today. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at podcastsyndicator.com or Brett at podcastsyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.